0: Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. Psalm 139. The theme of 139 is God is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. God knows us, God is with us, and His greatest gift is to allow us to know Him. This is by David. Verse 1. O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say, even before I say it. Lord, you go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. So all of that is about everything the Lord knows because he is all-knowing. Verse 7, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. So that section was about his presence. He is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere all at the same time. And he is ever present and that he will always be everywhere. Verse 19. O oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. O oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. So that section is about David's professed loyalty to God. And verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I want to read a comment on Psalm 139, verse 13 to 15, which are the verses that said, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. And the comment here reads, God's character goes into the creation of every person. When you feel worthless or even begin to hate yourself, remember that God's spirit is ready and willing to work within you. We should have as much respect for ourselves as our maker has for us. I love that because I think we are our own worst critics and we forget that we are carefully, wonderfully, and intentionally complex and not just the respect for ourselves, but also for others who are also intentionally, wonderfully complex made by the creator of everything. And I also want to read the comment on David's profession of loyalty, which included him stating hatred for anyone who opposed God. The comment reads, David's hatred for his enemies came from his zeal for God. David regarded his enemies as God's enemies, so his hatred was a desire for God's righteous justice and not for personal vengeance. Is it all right to be angry at people who hate God? Yes, but we must remember that it is God who will deal with them, not us. If we truly love God, then we will be deeply hurt if someone hates him. David asked God to search his heart and mind and point out any wrong motives that may have been behind his strong words. But while we seek justice against evil, we must also pray that God's enemies will turn to him before he judges them, see Matthew 5, 44. I think that's a really important distinction to be made. There's plenty of evil in this world to hate, but... There is, there's nobody that God can't forgive. And ultimately, he, he is the judge. He knows what's going on in men's hearts. And he's the one who will will give the judgment, not us. When I say that, I mean... I'm not discrediting the justice system, of course. Everybody I know who's ever worked in it admits that it's flawed, but we can't go around seeking personal vengeance. That's not. That's not the right motive, and that's definitely not David's motive here. I feel like reading Psalm 140 as well. It's really short. The theme here is prayer for protection against those who slander or threaten your deliverance begins with concentrating on our future life with God. Verse one, oh Lord, rescue me from evil people. Protect me from those who are violent, those who plot evil in their hearts and stir up trouble all day long. Their tongues sting like a snake. The venom of a viper drips from their lips. O Lord, keep me out of the hands of the wicked, protect me from those who are violent, for they are plotting against me. The proud have set a trap to catch me, they have stretched out a net, and they have placed traps all along the way. I said to the Lord, You are my God. Listen, O Lord, to my cries for mercy. O sovereign Lord, the strong one who rescued me, you protected me on the day of battle. Lord, do not let evil people have their way. Do not let their evil schemes succeed, or they will become proud. Let my enemies be destroyed by the very evil they have planned for me. Let burning coals fall down on their heads. Let them be thrown into the fire or into watery pits from which they can't escape. Don't let liars prosper here in our land. Cause great disasters to fall on the violent, but I know the Lord will help those they persecute. He will give justice to the poor. Surely righteous people are praising your name. The godly will live in your presence. Again here, like, geez, David. But we've got to remember, he was a battle commander. My brain does not think like that, but his did. Um, even here, when his thoughts are violent his trust is that god will take care of it and also because we get to know david pretty well in all of the the scriptures where he's involved in the psalms that he writes if god chose not to do all that to the enemies and and save the persecuted and bring justice to the poor david wouldn't lose faith in him he wouldn't stop trusting him he would still know that While maybe he didn't get his prayer request answered the way he wanted. (laughs) He didn't stop having faith in his creator. On the subject of anger and vengeance in the book of Psalms, there's a little commentary blurb here. I'll read. Several Psalms shock those familiar with the New Testament teachings the psalmist didn't hesitate to demand God's justice and make vivid suggestions on how he might carry it out. (laughs) That's so true. Apparently, no subject was unsuitable for discussion with God. But our tendency is to avoid the subjects of anger and vengeance in the book of Psalms. To understand the words of anger and vengeance, we need to understand several things. And then it lists four things. So this is number one. The judgments asked for are to be carried out by God and are written out of intense personal and national suffering. The people are unable or unwilling to take revenge themselves and are asking God to intervene. Because few of us have suffered intense cruelty on a personal or national level, we find it difficult to grasp these outbursts. That's a very good point. Uh, Few of... Us, I would say, being typical born and raised American individuals, though heavens knows there's a whole lot of personal and national suffering in the world. Number two, these writers were intimately aware of God's justice. Some of their words are efforts to vividly imagine what God might allow to happen to those who had harmed his people. Number three, if we dared to write down our thoughts while being unjustly attacked or suffering cruelty, we might be shocked at our own bold desire for vengeance. (laughs) That's so true. We would be surprised at how much we have in common with these men of old. The psalmist did not have Jesus' command to pray for one's enemies, but they did point to the right place to start. We are challenged to pay back good for evil, but until we respond to this challenge, we will not know how much we need God's help in order to forgive others. And finally, number four, there is a helpful parallel between the Psalms of anger and the Psalms of vengeance. The angry, quote unquote, angry Psalms are intense and graphic, but they are directed at God. He is boldly told how disappointing it is when he turns his back on his people or acts too slowly. But while these thoughts and feelings are sincerely expressed, we know from the Psalms themselves that these passing feelings are followed by renewed confidence in God's faithfulness. It is reasonable to expect the same of the vengeance, quote-unquote, vengeance Psalms. We read, for example, David's angry outburst against Saul's pursuit in Psalm 59. Yet we know that David never took personal revenge on Saul. The psalmists freely spoke their minds to God, having confidence that he could sort out what was meant and what was felt. Pray with the same confidence. God can be trusted with your heart. Selected psalms that emphasize these themes are 10, 23, 28, 35, 59, 69, 109, 137, 139, and 140. That's fantastic. I really, really like that. Good points there. In Proverbs, we're starting chapter 22. Now, the first half of chapter 22 is basically just like the Proverbs we've been reading for several chapters, short and sweet, and about a a vast variety of topics. The second half of chapter 22 starts a whole new section that goes through to chapter 24 on Sayings of the Wise. So we'll just read the ones in the first half, and then we can start the second half on Sayings of the Wise next time. So this is Proverbs 22, verse 1. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Mm. Isn't that the truth? Verse 2. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. Yeah, one is not better than the other. For sure. God made you both. Verse 3. A prudent person sees danger and takes precautions the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences (laughs) I love it I just I just love the the frankness of some of these verse 4 true humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches honor and a long life I'm going to read a comment on this one the general observation that fear of the Lord leads to riches honor and long life what have especially applicable in an obedient Israelite living in Solomon's God-fearing kingdom. Nevertheless, some have been martyrs at a young age, and some have given away all their wealth for the sake of God's kingdom. The book of Proverbs describes life the way it should be. It does not dwell on the exceptions. For more on this concept, see the note on Proverbs three, sixteen to 17 Verse 5, corrupt people walk a thorny, treacherous road. Whoever values life will avoid it, meaning avoid the treacherous, thorny road. Verse 6, direct your children into the right path, and they, and when they are older, they will not leave it. This particular verse, I have generally heard it quoted in the context of teach your children about God, and then they won't turn from it. And then parents whose children don't grow up to become believers then uh, are weighted down by huge amounts of of guilt that they carry for years, thinking that they did something wrong, that their children are not believers now. And of course, as an outsider, I, I don't have a clue there either way. Uh, But I do know that kids grow up and make their own decisions at a certain point and often are highly, can, can be more influenced by their friends than their parents after a certain age. So I think sometimes parents give themselves a harder time than they need to because of that particular verse being preached to mean that thing. I don't know that that's exactly what it means, though. And there's an interesting comment here on it. It takes it out of the whole idea of this means teach your children about Christ and then they'll never turn away. This one is saying, help your kids become who they're meant to be. It says in the process of helping our children choose the right path, we must discern differing paths for each child. It is natural to want to bring up all our children alike or train them in the same way. This verse implies that parents should discern discern the individuality and special strengths that God has given each one. While we should not condone or excuse self-will, each child has natural inclinations that parents can develop. By talking to teachers, other parents, and grandparents, we can better discern and develop the individual capabilities of each child. This seems way more logical to me to be a reasonable meaning of this verse. Continuing on, verse 7 just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. And this is why you don't borrow money from family or friends, because then it makes that person a servant. To their family member or friend, it destroys the relationship. Make it a gift, not a loan. Verse 8, those who plant injustice will harvest disaster and their reign of terror will come to an end. Verse 9, blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. God loves us to take care of the poor. And Jesus himself modeled that. Verse 10 Throw out the mocker and fighting goes to, quarrels and insults will disappear. Huh, throw out the mocker and fighting goes to, quarrels and insults will disappear. Basically, throw out the person who's stirring the pot and intentionally causing problems. Thank you. I think I will next time I get a chance. <laughs> verse 11 whoever loves a pure heart and a gracious and gracious speech will have the king as a friend verse 12 the lord preserves those with knowledge but he ruins the plans of the treacherous verse 13 the lazy person claims there's a lion out there if i go outside i might be killed that's it that's the verse The lazy person claims there's a lion out there. If I go outside, I might be killed. Is that meaning like they don't even go to check? They hear a scary noise. It must be a lion. But if they went and checked, they'd realize, oh, it was just a bird knocking over a flower pot. I mean, what is this? This is the weirdest verse. There's a comment here. It says this proverb refers to an excuse a lazy person might use to avoid going to work. The excuse sounds silly to us, but that's often how our excuses sound to others. (laughs) Don't rationalize laziness. Take your responsibilities seriously and get to work. Okay, sure. I'm just going to have to take your word for that one. Verse 14. The mouth of an immoral woman is a dangerous trap. Those who make the Lord angry will fall into it. The mouth of an immoral woman is a dangerous trap. Those who make the Lord angry will fall into it. Interesting. Verse 15. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. The comment on this one says, Young children often do foolish and dangerous things simply because they don't understand the consequences. Well, this is true. Wisdom and common sense are not transferred by a parent's good example alone. Just as God trains and corrects us to make us better, so parents must discipline their children to help them learn the difference between right and wrong to see how God corrects us. Read, read Proverbs three eleven to 12. Interesting. They interpret that as discipline. I interpret that as chores, <laughs> which maybe is discipline, but not as punishment. Right? A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Interesting. I think teach him how to work hard is what that means to me. Verse 16. A person who gets ahead by oppressing the poor or by showering gifts on the rich will end in poverty. Oh, and then it's righteous justice and we... We love to see that stuff all over social media these days, don't we? Acts chapter 18. In chapter 17, Paul preached in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Some believed what he said about Jesus. Others didn't take it so well. Starting in chapter 18, verse 1. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. He's like, well... I told you the truth. Take it or leave it. If you don't take it, your blood's on your own head. And then he moves on. Verse 7. Then he left and went to the home of Titus Justice, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. That must have been interesting. Being a Gentile who lived right next door to the synagogue. Seeing the Jews worship. Not buying into it. Alright, verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, uh, became believers, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the Word of God. Now, my chronological Bible uh, takes a pause in the book of Acts, right here at the beginning of chapter 18, and it will next jump to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So, we're stopping with Acts for now. I'm going to read a comment here providing some historical context on the city of Corinth. It says, Corinth was the political and commercial center of Greece, surpassing Athens in importance. It had a reputation for great wickedness and immorality. A temple to Aphrodite, goddess of love and war, had been built on the large hill behind the city. In this popular religion, people worshipped the goddess by giving money to the temple and taking part in sexual acts with male and female temple prostitutes. Paul found Corinth a challenge and a great ministry opportunity. Later, he would write a series of letters to the Corinthians, dealing in part with the problems of immorality. Two of these letters are the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So in this book, we read a bit about Paul's occupation. Other than a minister, he was also a tent maker, along with Aquila, the man he meets here. It says, each Jewish boy learned a trade and tried to earn his living with it. Paul and Aquila had been trained in tent making, cutting and sewing the woven cloth of goat's hair into tents. Tents were used to house soldiers, so these tents may have been sold to the Roman army. As a tent maker, Paul was able to go wherever God led him, carrying his livelihood with him. The word tent maker in Greek was also used to describe a leather worker. So, My Bible has a little profile on Aquila and Priscilla, which is really rather interesting and also interesting historical fact. This piece of scripture happens around A.D. 50. And a side note, something that also happened in A.D. 50 was that Romans began using soap. So congratulations, Rome. You smell a lot better now. All right. Aquila and Priscilla. Some married couples know how to make the most of life. They complement each other, capitalize on each other's strengths, and form an effective team. Their united efforts affect those around them. Aquila and Priscilla were such a couple. They are never mentioned separately in the Bible. In marriage and ministry, they operate as one. Priscilla and Aquila met Paul in Corinth during his second missionary journey, which is the part we just read, they had just been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius's decree against Jews. Their home was as movable as the tents they made to support themselves. They opened their home, or their tent, to Paul, and he joined them in tent-making. He shared with them his wealth of spiritual wisdom. Priscilla and Aquila made the most of their spiritual education. They listened carefully to sermons and evaluated what they heard. When they heard Apollo speak, they were impressed by his ability but realized that his information was not complete. And this will come in one of the later scriptures where they're mentioned. Instead of open confrontation, the couple quietly took Apollos home and shared with him what he needed to know. Until then, Apollos had only been aware of John the Baptist's message about Christ. Priscilla and Aquila told him about Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, and the reality of God's indwelling spirit. He continued, he being apollos continued to preach powerfully but now with the full story as for priscilla and aquila they went on using their home as a warm place for training and worship back in rome years later they hosted one of the house churches that developed in an age when the focus is mostly and this is kind of fast forwarding to present time now our present age When the focus is mostly on what happens between a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla are an example of what can happen through a husband and wife. Their effectiveness together is the result of their good relationship with each other. Their hospitality opened the doorway of salvation to many. The Christian home is still one of the best tools for spreading the gospel. Do guests find Christ in your home? I'm afraid not because we're in the middle of a pandemic where we're not supposed to be having a bunch of people in our home. Anyway, let's see. So... A key verse on them comes from Romans sixteen three through 4. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. And that definitely sounds like Paul speaking. I'm sure it was. The story, uh, their story stories, told in Acts 18, which we just read, and also Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Timothy 4. So, Paul traveled to Corinth in A.D. 50, and from there, he wrote back to the believers in Thessalonica, where he had left relatively recently. comment here says, during the year and a half that Paul stayed in Corinth, he established a church there, wrote the two letters to Thessalonica, which is why... My Bible is putting them right here because it's doing it in uh, chronological order of the timeline. And although Paul had been in Thessalonica for only a short time, which we read in Acts 17, he commended the believers there for their loving deeds, strong faith, and endurance inspired by hope. Because not everybody there believed him. While encouraging them to stay away from irreality, he dealt with the themes of salvation, suffering, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul told them to continue to work hard while they awaited Christ's return. So that's what I'll be jumping into next time.